I ask you to please join me in a word of prayer. Well, Lord, I do thank you for your word, and I even thank you for James, especially when it seems to punch us right on the nose. And so I pray for your help this morning, that each one of us would soften our hearts before you, even me. I pray for your help, Lord, as I preach. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have good news for you this morning, I promise. But we're in the topic of wealth, and as I prepared to preach on James, uh, the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, I read a a number of different resources, and one of them was a pastor who did a seven-week sermon series on the seven deadly sins. And when he announced that he was going to do these seven weeks and these specific um, pitfalls to our soul, his wife said, I'll bet your attendance is lowest when you preach on greed. And sure enough, the end of the seven weeks, that was the low week. He said on the topic of lust and wrath, they had a packed house, even on pride. He said, but on the topic of greed, it was, it was like half the attendance. And the reason is because nobody actually thinks they're materialistic. Nobody actually thinks we have a problem with greed. It's interesting that Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says, be on guard against all kinds of greed. You know, he doesn't have to say that about murder or adultery. When you've got a gun and you've got bad intentions, you know what you're doing, right? If you're going to commit murder, you're on top of it. It doesn't happen by accident. The problem with greed and coveting is it's going on internally as we're sinning, and it's insidious. It creeps in, and we somehow are blinded to the topic. So a good, a good starting point for all of us should be, this could be me. This could be my problem. I don't even know it, but I might have this kind of a problem. So I hope you'll soften your heart to that, and I want to begin by asking you the question of your relationship with wealth. How is your relationship with money right now? Would you say that you are enjoying it without being controlled by it? Would you say you're holding on loosely? You're able to give something away or have something taken from you without it devastating you? Are you generous? Are you content? Or are you desiring something? Have you been spending time researching this next thing you have to have to get the next level of satisfaction? Where are you? Where is your soul with the topic of money and possessions and wealth and resources? Consider the the triangle of your needs, and I'm thinking Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Your actual needs, starting with air, water, you know, food, clothing, shelter, relationships. Where, think of your needs, think of what you have, and then think of what you want. That triangle, is the, the line is very gray between those, those points on the triangle. What we think we need might not be actually a real need, and what we have might be doing way better than we realize, and what we want might not actually be a good thing for us. So it, it's actually a helpful exercise to sit down in your journal and draw that triangle and say, what do I need, what do I want, and what do I have? And ask that question a little bit. I was thinking, imagine the, the dreaded house fire happens. And by the way, probably most of us are underinsured right now because the property values have shot up so high. And I was thinking, oh, I need to probably go review my, how my house insurance amount is. But if your house burned down and you got only some of the insurance money you needed to rebuild, you've got to cut way back. What is essential? What do you get first? What clothing? What furniture? What size house even? 
those kind of questions. You know, I walked through Ikea, and I don't like that store for a whole number of reasons, but um, there was a section that had 350 square feet, and it was an entire apartment. You know how in the factory they make these little rooms, and it was like simple living, like everybody's into these small houses. Can you live in a, a 30 by 50, or I guess 350, a 35 by 10 area your entire life? Can you do it? My daughter turned me on to a show called Alone. It's like Survivor, but less of a game show and political. They, they literally put 10 survival experts out in British Columbia in bear-infested territory, nowhere near another human or each other, and they have 10 items and a camera and an and a emergency phone. And it's literally the last person standing wins a half a million dollars. And so they all have to build a, some kind of shelter. They have to figure out how they're going to get fish or hunt or eat berries or whatever. And snow is coming. And they're, of course, supposed to document this whole thing. And they're talking to the camera. But there's no cameraman with them. So they're, it's just them. And it's funny how a lot of them are wrestling with simplicity. What do I need? Bare essentials. What do I need to survive? And they're saying things like, I have all this stuff back at home, and I realize I don't need all that stuff. What I need is, and they're really down to Maslow's hierarchy of needs in that show. It's fascinating. But what do you actually need? What are your essentials? Now, in James chapter 5, it's, in, it's on page 1013 in a pew Bible, it's hitting us with our attitude toward money and possessions. And I want each one of us this morning to be free to enjoy God's blessings and free to share them and not in any way possessed by them. So James is helpful, and I, I did pray, it's a punch on the nose, and as B.E. said, as you go through his letter, he seems to get more and more direct in his language. Now, in this context here, I want to suggest to you that he's not talking to Christians. In fact, I think he is, he's writing to the church, but he's, in his mind, he's writing to worldly materialists, people that are not Christians, and worship uh, possessions and items and materialism. And here's why I think that. Well, first of all, he says twice, and only here does this occur in the entire New Testament, come now you. We have two paragraphs in our text today. The first one says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and make money. And, and then the second one says, come now you rich. He's been addressing people as brother and sister, and he does it 15 times in five chapters, and he stops addressing them as brother and sister here. Back in verse 11 of chapter 4, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. And then he doesn't use that address again until he gets to, to chapter 5, verse 7, where he says, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. In this section, these two paragraphs, he does not say anything about that address. Furthermore, back in chapter 2, when he says, don't show partiality to a rich person who should come into your church, and he, he, he makes the point that are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are not they the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So he makes the distinction between you, the church, and those rich people. I think he was writing to a pretty poor church and a church that was suffering persecution and a church that had been robbed. They were literally stealing the possessions of Christians in that first century and were just persecuting the church. So I think he's writing this distinction and, and there's, no, there's no encouragement or grace in this. It's sheer condemnation for self-will to get rich 
And then once you have the money, the worship of money. And I think here's the reason. I think, one, he wants to stay the hand of the church from vengeance. Don't go steal it back from those rich people. Don't hate them. Let me tell you the judgment that's coming upon those that worship money. So church, be patient. And be careful. Don't you fall into it should you come into some wealth. I stopped our Psalm 62 at verse 10. It has actually another one or two verses after it because the last part where we stop says, if, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. And I think that's James' word to his church. Be careful because what I'm about to say to those who worship wealth could apply to you if you gain some wealth and fall into this trap. Don't become a materialist. Watch out for this. Now, today's choice is God or money, a choice that Jesus gave very clearly. He said, you cannot serve both of these masters. You will either serve the one and hate the other or vice versa. Decide who you will serve, God or money. Jesus taught that. And remember, James was picking up a lot of this teaching. And so today, we're faced with that question. Who is first, God or money? Where's our heart? I I thought of the mockery that our own currency has where it says, in God we trust, and I was going to put that on the screen, and I forgot to do it, and then as I was back there praying, I thought, I better not bring the the abomination of desecration into God's temple and put a picture of the American dollar bill up on the screen. But our coins, everyone, all of our coins from the penny all the way up to the $50 bill, it says, in God we trust, and oftentimes over like the Capitol building or over some important um, government thing. Government, money, or God, where where are you going to trust? And our money says, in God we trust. But do we? I think it'd be interesting if it said, if we want to be content in God, we trust. Or for those who want to be free of anxiety, in God, they trust. But it just says, in God, we trust. Now, the first paragraph here at the end of chapter four is dealing with the pursuit of wealth. One awful musician uh, title is Get Rich or Die Trying. That's a, a rap album's title. Get rich or die trying. The pursuit of wealth. And James says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Be careful if your motivation is entirely money. Business ventures are fine. You do want to be profitable. It's a good thing. Nobody wants to lose money and go out of business. We want to be profitable, but he's saying, be careful of the arrogance to think it's actually in your power to be successful. Where do you think it ultimately comes from? James says, you should say, if the Lord wills, God willing, we would like to do this and lay a plan before God and say, God, this is what we're thinking. We want to seek first your kingdom. James says, those of you, those, those out there, come now you, those people that, are, that he's describing here, Don't you know that you're just a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes? What is your life? You know, Jesus told a parable of a rich man called the rich fool who made all this money and built bigger barns, and then he says, you fool, your life will be demanded of you this night, and then who's going to get all that stuff? And so he was all about worldly wealth, but was not tuned in in any way to the Lord, you know? Have you made decisions in your life based entirely on money? I told you, I think about a guy that was on our prayer team at the church I went to in Chicago, and he got a promotion and could make all this money and moved his family to Texas and got there and found that he had no church. 
and he forgot there's more in the decision than just, can I make more money at this other job? He lifted his family out of one state into another, but he also lost his church. And he, he came to this conclusion and went, I've got to move back. And he moved back to that church and found a job in Chicago from Texas because he made a decision entirely based on money. I wonder if you've done that. Somebody at the 745 service came up to me and said, you know, I made my entire career in the profession I chose because when I was in school, they published a list of the highest paying jobs. And I picked the one that was at the top that day and then proceeded down a whole route of education that eventually landed him in that career, and it's lucrative. But he's like, there's all these other aspects of my personality and gifts I have that I don't get to use in that particular career. I won't tell you what the career is because there's only like 30 people at the 745 service and you might figure out who it is. <laughs> but have you made a decision ever based entirely on money? That's kind of the attitude he's talking about here to these people who say, we're going to go and get rich. Well, maybe if God wills, why don't you ask him? Why don't you take your plans before him and see what his plans are? Now, the second paragraph deals with those who are rich. And this is where it starts to get real uncomfortable for us living here in the West, living here in Fleming Island or nearby, educated, affluent. You know, if you look globally, you know, take a look at how life is for the average person in India, and they will trade lives with you in a heartbeat. So I'm already, like, uncomfortable. And then when I read the paragraph, it's all condemnation. The whole paragraph. There's, he gives no hope right here. Because I think the bigger context is he's calling judgment down. It's a prophetic word against the lore of wealth and and what wealth can ultimately do for you, which is not what you want, so then you will ask the bigger question. So I read this, and I think, oh, my goodness. He starts right out and says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your stuff that you put all your hope in is going to rot. It's rotting. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. You know, that actually sounds again like Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth where rust and moth and thieves can ruin it, right? That's the passage B.E. referred to of seeking first the kingdom. So he's saying, you that put your hope in, in wealth, it's going to rot. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, your gold and silver have corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. So not only is your stuff going to fail, it's going to ruin your very heart like a fire that burns within you ah, I read this and I start cringing and I think my stuff is, it's not that my stuff's going to fail, it's also going to hurt me. You know, like something that is rusting, if it's next to another thing, the rust can jump onto that thing. Like metal things can rust in sequence if there's not air separating them. It's like my stuff is going to rust my very soul if I let it. This is frightening. And then there's this mention in here about the evidence against you. In verse 4 and 6, what's this evidence well, there are poor people that have been taken advantage of in order to get this, this wealth. The workers that mow the field, you, you defrauded them, and they are crying out. And the only mention of the Lord in here is the Lord of hosts, meaning the Lord of armies. He's got angel armies. This is the God of the army. The Lord of hosts has heard their cry, and he's paying attention to you, their oppressor. Yikes. And then he says, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You know, when the farmer goes out to pick which cow it's gonna be this year, you wanna be the skinny one with bones sticking out of your ribs. And he's saying, you fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Yikes, yikes. 
This is painful. And then, and then he says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person or the innocent person. He doesn't even resist you because he can't. These aren't your enemies that you're attacking. These are the poor, and you're exploiting them for your own wealth and pleasure and leisure. All right, I'm going to stop there because I think you get the point. James has called out a prophetic word against the failures of wealth and what happens if we put our heart and our hope in it. Thankfully, the gospel speaks a lot about money and resources, and uh, I'm going to go to a number of places, but one is, the, is 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where Paul says, consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus had everything, and he emptied himself of it and was willing to come to save us, to die for us, so that he could make us rich. And I don't think that's like an earthly wealth but I think that's a mere side effect of having the king who has all things. If you have him, you get everything else, but you don't do that to get everything else. He is the great treasure, and he's made himself poor so that by faith in him, we can experience the riches of Christ, which are far bigger than any you know, worldly rich, uh, riches you can get. I, I heard that some guy won a lottery for a billion dollars. I think it's a record. Somebody got the numbers, and they won a billion dollars. Like, that's a ridiculously huge number of zeros. What good is it? At some point, it's just ridiculous. We need more than that, actually. We need the Lord. He is the great prize. He's the treasure we actually need. Consider Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's both a prayer and a statement that we hope is true, but is it true? If the Lord is my shepherd, what more could I want? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. You know, he prepares a table before me. He anoints my head. My cup overflows. It speaks of this God who loves you and will provide everything for you, everything that you ultimately need as well as your temporal needs. And I want to say that the Bible has a very positive view of wealth. He's not saying, Jesus said to one man, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. But that is not a universal statement. That was that man's issue. And some have taken it as a call to themselves, which it might be for them, but that is not the understanding. God's desire is not for us all to live in poverty. In fact, he encourages the believers to provide for their family. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey when he was giving the promised land to his people, right? I'm not sending you into a, a desert that has nothing. You're not going to just eat this manna all day long in, in the sand. You're going into a land that will produce It'll have herds, it'll have vines, it'll have all the stuff. It's, it's bountiful. The creation is seen as good in Genesis and to be enjoyed. God made this great garden and put Adam and Eve in it to live off of that land and enjoy it. He said, this is good. So the Bible recognizes that provision is needed, that God intends for us to have adequate provision, but it also is equally warning us of the dangers of making that more than it should be in our lives, of possession by the possessions, of it getting our hearts. And so it warns about the love of money. Not money, the love of money as a root of all kinds of evil. And so what we see here is a spectrum, like a, a pendulum swinging from one side to the next. On one side, there is the, the idea of materialism, right? Just eat, drink, and be merry. It's all about materialism. And it's deadly license. It kills us. On this side, though, this severe asceticism, poverty, throw everything away, nothing is good, is a deadly kind of legalism. And I don't think either one is where you need to be. I think there's something in the middle. And 
I think it's the spiritual discipline of simplicity, which is not simplistic, by the way. I have a book called The Freedom of Simplicity. Richard Foster wrote it, and it is one of the two most challenging books I've ever read. I've read it multiple times. I understood exactly what he was saying. Challenging because I can't quite get there. I'm still working on it. Foster says this in a different one of his books, Celebration of Discipline. He says, simplicity is the only thing that sufficiently reorients our lives so that our possessions can be genuinely enjoyed without ruining us. Without ruining us. So, what does simplicity look like? Well, there's an inner component to it and an outer component to it. The inner component is recognizing that everything you have is a gift from God and receiving it as such. Thank you, God, for everything. It also holds on very loosely to things and says, I'm merely a steward of God's things. That car you drove here in this morning, that's God's car. That kind of attitude is part of the inner discipline of simplicity. Yes, you have to tend to it, but do you think it's the lock on that car that actually is keeping it from being ruined? Is not God the steward of his things as well as you? The inner discipline of simplicity recognizes that these are God's things. Ultimately, they're his. I'm tending them for a little while in a little way, but he is ultimately also tending them. And then the third part of the inner discipline of simplicity is to have your things available for those that are in need, to share, to hold them with open hands rather than to cling to them. How are you with letting people use your stuff? Now, you have to be wise on this. I recognize there's some common sense applications here, but in general, to share, to receive things with gratitude, to steward them as God's things, and to be willing to share them with others. That is the inner discipline of simplicity. And there's a, there's a matching outer discipline. See, if you have that inner discipline, but it doesn't play out in actual practical things. I mean, this is James, right? He's telling us what to do. He's saying, I, of all the verses in here, half of them are imperatives, saying you should do this thing. Literally, half of the verses have an imperative telling you what to do. We should do things. If you have the inner disposition of simplicity, but you haven't done it externally, then you're basically a materialist in your life. And the flip side is, if you have the externals, where you're putting in place all these simplistic ways to live, all these rules about how many pairs of shoes you can own and whatever, you're just basically a legalist if you don't have the inner disposition to go with the external. You have to have both. So what does the external look like? Well, we could spend a long time here, and I'm about out of time. Um, I'll give you just a couple of ideas. From James, concern for the poor is part of external simplicity. So giving to the poor to help alleviate the suffering of those that don't have adequate provision. That's part of having the discipline of simplicity. Another thing is to reject oppression. If that thing you buy causes somebody to live in slavery in a sweatshop or whatever, don't buy that. Buy the more expensive one that has ethical practices and how it was made. Give. I mean, I, I usually say in the offering that we give as an act of worship, and it breaks the stronghold of money in our lives. Literally giving things away gives you freedom. Being generous. The tithe, giving 10% to God, is the starting point in the Old Covenant. And the New Testament doesn't get rid of it. It doesn't really expand it either. But they didn't even know who the Messiah was, and we have the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I think the tithe as an Old Testament starting point is a good starting point for us. Don't live on more than 90% of what you're stewarding for yourself. At least give 10% to God. And then offerings on top of that. That's a good starting point if you want to put in place the external disciplines of simplicity. Deaccumulate. 
how much has stuff piled up, kind of like with a hoarding mindset, in a way that's causing none of our stuff to be enjoyed. We all have that junk drawer. We all have that room that's got too much furniture in it because we don't want to give something away. It starts to pile up. Our, I mean, you, well, I don't want to show you my garage, but stuff starts to pile up, and then nothing in there is enjoyable. Deaccumulate, declutter, give it away. And I, another external of simplicity is praying before you buy something. You know, that one-click thing on Amazon is deadly. Click, buy with one click. I don't even have time to, to take a breath before I purchased it. Like, it'd be good to say a prayer for a day and say, do I need that thing, God? I'm going to wait till tomorrow to order it. I mean, it comes in one day anyway with Amazon shipping and stuff if you have Amazon Prime. It's crazy how quickly we can buy. Maybe ask the Lord to provide it. Maybe somebody deaccumulating in this church will give you the thing you were going to buy because you waited a day. Interesting. These, and you can come up with hundreds of other things. So there's not a rule here. But if you want to have the, the joy of possessions without them possessing you, you recognize that God himself is our great possession. He's the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And then you, have the, you work on the inner disposition of receiving those things in a certain way. And then you start to build practices externally. Most of you know all of this. This is more like, do you floss, right? Well, I should, I know I should, but do you? This is a reminder to floss financially, to think about simplicity, to think through the practices. But don't take condemnation from it. James was condemning the love of wealth, but he was encouraging his church. I wanna do the same for you and recognize that the Lord is a good shepherd. He loves you. He knows what you need, and he's given you that plus way more. Work on the, the spiritual discipline of simplicity and receive it as they did in that very first Pentecost community of Acts 2 with glad and sincere hearts. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word, even where it really challenges us. I pray that you would extend your grace to us today on this topic. Help us have the joy of being merely stewards of your things. I pray that you'd set us free from worldly loves and give us the freedom of simplicity. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.